Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The Trudeau government's carbon pollution tax, or rebate tax, is it falling on deaf ears or receptive ears? I spoke with Dan Kelly. He's the president and the CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and he has concerns. The Trudeau government's carbon or pollution tax plan for the four provinces which have declared they will not collect the tax, or Ottawa, was the subject of my conversation with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, who has described this not as a plan, but as a scheme. A terrible shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, the alleged U.S. pipe bomber arrested in Florida, and the Immigration and Refugee Board in Canada orders a refugee claimant and ISIS supporter living in B.C. deported from this country. Tom Quiggan, senior researcher at the Canadian Centre of Intelligence and Security at Carleton University, joined me to speak about all of this. The United Nations Global Compact on Migration is about to be signed by 189 countries, including Canada, but excluding the United States. Michelle Rempel is the Conservative Party Shadow Cabinet Minister for Citizenship, Immigration and Refugees. She had thoughts on this. Dan Kelly is the President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They represent the small and medium-sized businesses in this country who are, we'll say it again, the number one employers in Canada. And he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. Hi, Dan. How's it going, Roy? Good. How are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. It's been a busy week, though. Man, two two big issues, uh, labor bill uh, being lifted in Ontario, and then, of course, a new carbon tax coming in 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 four provinces, so a lot of businesses are, their heads are spinning right now. Yeah, so who's paying for the carbon tax rebates, Trudeau promises, and which in Ontario, if the Liberals' math is correct, will be greater, the rebate will be greater than their annual carbon tax outlay. I'm sorry, Dan, I can't see through the smoke. Uh, I know it's not, I know it's not transnational corporations, or just very large industry in Canada, because they get a pass, but who does that leave? Does that leave possibly the small and medium-sized businesses to to carry the load? You know, it is, uh, I think a credible case can be made that, that if, if what the government is saying is right, that, that consumers are going to receive a rebate larger than the amount that they're going to spend in carbon-based taxation, that, that it'll actually be small and medium-sized firms alone that will be left holding the bag. You know, as, as you just pointed out, uh, the multinational corporations have, uh, have, have, got other options available to them. One is that they pursue exemptions, and in many cases that's already happened, where there are full exemptions for some large emitters from carbon-based taxes, albeit that there are some other things that they may have to do. The other way that they do this is they shift uh, the, the production of, of, of whatever carbon-intensive activity they might have to lower, ta- lower, lower tax jurisdictions, most notably the United States, or they may they may just be able to pass along those uh, costs to consumers, which then I think tests the credibility as to whether or not the consumer rebate is going to be sufficient to cover the full costs. But if rebate if consumers are getting rebates and large firms are getting exemptions or have other things to do, I'm very worried that small and medium sized firms, the group that already was hit with higher taxes last year as a result of small business tax changes, as CPP increases coming up this year as well, that they may be alone the ones that are going to be paying the carbon tax. What's the mood among your members? Well, you know, the, the anger that happened from 2017's small business tax changes hasn't gone away. 
And it surprises many in government when I share that with them, that, that I think there was some uh, there was some meeting of the minds, a little bit of, uh, uh, of, of uh, I think, of coming together, government recognizing that it had overstepped. And so we've been spending the last year trying to see if we can have a better working relationship. And on some fronts, that's happened. But then, of course, now we're getting clobbered with yet another tax in four provinces, and that uh, has set the mood off once again of business owners. I've got, I, I can't tell you how many angry calls and emails. Sounds like you're getting a lot of those, too. I am. From business owners that are, that are saying, okay, at what point is the breaking point for me? At what point does it make no, long, no longer make sense for me to continue to operate in Canada when I have alternatives? And people are also wondering whether or not, they, I mean, can we believe the government when they say that the rebates are going to outstrip the cost of paying for the carbon taxes, the various taxes that show up? At $20 per ton, uh, it's, uh, it's supposedly manageable, but later on, uh, just, just how manageable is it going to be to provide the rebate that outstrips what the consumer is going to have to pay? Because we don't know what the consumer is actually going to have to pay. And I look back at, uh, Dan, I just look back at the Wynn government. And before that, the McGuinty governments, and we'll talk about Ontario, where $149 billion was the provincial debt uh, when Mr. McGuinty took over. By the time Kathleen Wynne was removed from office by the electorate, just literally weeks ago, the provincial debt was $312 billion, the world's largest sub-sovereign debt. And, uh, and much of that had to do with their, with their climate plan, with their green, uh, green energy plan, with all the plans that they had and the initiatives, initiatives they, they undertook that hurt people. And cost and put the province behind the financial eight ball. So why? How are we supposed to? I mean, can we assume that the federal government's um, projections are going to be any better than Kathleen Wynne's were? I am really worried that, uh, and this is the part that we're doing some uh, studying of right now, that when the government has talked about the cost, uh, the, the, the rebate checks will be larger than the direct co- than the costs to homeowners or costs to households that it will actually be just the direct cost, the money that they spend specifically on carbon taxes where it's perhaps embedded in the price of the fuel that they buy or their home heating for, you know, if they're buying uh, natural gas. What I don't think has been considered, and again, we do have to investigate this further, is the other piece that is in the background paper of, of uh, uh, with respect to the carbon tax information put out this week by the federal government, and that is the expectation of the federal government is that businesses, when they get hit with their end of the carbon tax, that they will essentially just pass it on to consumers. So those indirect costs that every household in Canada will start to have to absorb as of, I guess, April of 2019, that I don't think will be covered off by the rebate that the government is offering, mm-hmm. and and that's the piece where I think uh, you your instincts uh, may be correct. So we're we're studying that further to find out what's going on. I suspect what's happening is the rebate checks will initially look larger than the outlay, but that'll be the visible part of what the consumer can see that it might be added to their their home heating bill or their or when they fill up their tank, not the invisible part if they're paying higher prices for the products because the business has had to absorb its share of the carbon tax. Yeah. I mean, it's going, to be, it's going to be incremental across the board from the very beginning of production to the point that you, uh, that you, you take ownership as the, as the consumer. The, the tax burden is going to increase right across the, 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 the whole spectrum there, I suspect. And that's going to hurt the consumer. I never trust, I, I cannot believe a government that says to me, you're going to get more money back from us than you're going to pay 
for the initiative that we're undertaking, particularly a government that said they were going to keep their deficits to $10 billion. We know what happened to that. Uh, and they've made other fiscal promises and, and commitments that they, that they have not kept. Uh, how are businesses in the western provinces reacting to this? Is there anything different to what you're hearing from, from provinces in central Canada and maybe the Maritimes? Well, I mean, the important difference is, is who's collecting the tax and what's happening with the revenue. Uh, the, you know, Alberta, of course, has a carbon tax right now uh, that is, you know, that, that I think the Premier's announced some changes to since the, uh, since, the since taking office. Right. Uh, B.C. has had a carbon tax for a while. Quebec has, uh, uh, Quebec has a different scheme altogether. So it's not unheard of to have these taxes. What is unheard of is for the federal government to jump in and do it in the, in the fashion that they're looking at. And the, and the piece that, of course, for small businesses that we're paying most attention to is the fairness of this all. Uh, we're looking at this from, from two perspectives. Is this fair that consumers will get rebates, but the small business that is perhaps already struggling uh, and, and will be further with Canada Pension Plan premium increases this year, is it fair that they're going to get hit without a, uh, an offsetting rebate or a reduction in some fashion? And secondly, from a competitiveness perspective, if you're competing against a firm that is in a jurisdiction with no carbon taxes at all, mm-hmm. or you know, when Canadians mm-hmm. get frustrated because they see a price on the shelf of a, of a store in the U.S. that's cheaper than the price of the store in Canada, yep. uh, part of that can be explained by the higher tax burden yep. that we're experiencing. And, and this is going to make it worse, not better. And that lays the sword across the neck of the Canadian business, small business person again. It really does, and and we're already struggling with that from a competitiveness perspective. We're we're optimistic. Bill Morneau did channel that there. I guess he is looking at some form of uh, of, of uh, similar credit to what they have in the U.S., where businesses can write off uh, a capital outlay in the beginning, which is which would be good news. We certainly compliment him if he did it. Uh, but that would be that's one measure, and we're starting to see the the tax advantage that Canada once had. Uh, start to erode, and, and that's deeply, deeply troubling to SMEs who are feeling right now that they're in an unsteady economy. We have about a minute, so what's going on? And let's come back to Ontario for a moment, and the and the fact that the provincial government of Mr. Ford has changed the uh, the uh, the the approach for minimum wage and labor law in the province, and will not go to fifteen dollars an hour in January. That's resulted in some pretty nasty response. So what are your, how's it affecting, I mean, what are you hearing from your members on all of this? Well, a huge, huge relief. I've got to tell you, it is a courageous government that starts to roll back labor laws. Uh, now, they didn't roll back the $14 an hour minimum wage back to a more reasonable level than it was only, a, you know, six months ago. Mm-hmm. However, uh, they have, in Bill 148, rolled back a whole bunch of the other changes to to labor legislation in Ontario, things like statutory holiday pay rules, uh, um, personal emergency leave days. Uh, There was a huge laundry list of changes, mostly originating from the Ontario Federation of Labor, uh, that were just rolled back. And and that is good news for small and medium-sized companies in Ontario. We have congratulated them for for moving forward on that. It, it, it took a lot to do it, and I, I give them credit for that. Most, most conservative governments wouldn't even touch that with a 10-foot pole. Dan Kelly, thank you so much for the time. Anytime. Always good talking to you. President, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. The carbon tax and uh, the rebate. And I'm trying to find my notes here on what it is Mr. Trudeau called it. 
you know, all sorts of names. Anyway, it's it's a it's a it's a word goulash, but the reality of it is that it's a carbon tax. The the prime minister uh, promises that the four pro- residents of the four taxpayers in the four provinces, which are refusing to collect the tax, that would be Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and possibly it'll be Alberta uh, by uh, the end of next May. That residents of the those provinces will get a, a rebate from the federal government to make up for the increase in in uh, in uh, cost of carbon. I don't know if his word is intensive anymore. I don't know what they're talking about now. It's poly- pollution. It's not climate change anymore. I, I think it's just get it done by confusing everybody. Scott Moe is the premier of Saskatchewan. The premier is very good to us, providing his time. He describes the federal liberal plan as a shell game on taking your dollars and a shell game on emissions after the discovery the Trudeau government was going to count Ontario purchase of California carbon credits as Canadian emissions reduction under the Ontario-Quebec-California Cap-and-Trade Partnership. Premier, thank you for the time. I, I just, when, I, when, when I try to understand this, I get a headache. Oh, thank you, Roy. I appreciate being on it. Uh... It's, uh, we've maybe gone a, a step further than uh, economically, or, or on the environmental side, it is nothing but a shell game. But on the uh, on the economic side and on uh, now uh, attempting to return money uh, to the people that are ultimately paying it, uh, it's just nothing more than a sham and a, and a real blatant attempt to, uh, to buy votes, essentially, going into the federal election. And what do you say about people who accuse you and Premier Ford and uh, Premier Pallister, and uh, we're not sure who's going to govern New Brunswick just yet, but uh, but but they're accusing the opposition, the political opposition, to Trudeau's plan as being uh, uh, as being having excessive self-interest, and uh, and and I've I read a column earlier this morning where the columnist suggested to industry that was maybe uh, thinking of leaving Canada because of all of this and going to the greener pastures in the United States or perceived greener pastures where they have no carbon tax and inducements are being offered to Canadian companies to move, that the Canadian companies might well, might as well just get up and leave. If you can't take it, get out. I find that absolutely abhorrent. Well, the, the self-interest, I'll speak for myself and I'll let the other premiers speak for them, but I, I suspect they may have a, a similar message. The self-interest that I have is on behalf of of the people of Saskatchewan uh, in protecting our environment, yes, and and we have a we have a great uh, record when it comes to uh, what we do here in Saskatchewan environmentally from a carbon perspective as well in industries that we that we rely on for jobs in our communities and for careers, uh, quite frankly, in our career in our communities, and that is the balance that we need to continue to keep in mind is we need to always improve uh, from an environmental perspective and always improve from a carbon perspective, communicate that with our customers. Um, but we also need to remember that we have a strong economy here in the, in Saskatchewan and across Canada, and we have an innovative economy that has solutions to these challenges, uh, such as, as global climate change, and has a real opportunity to engage uh, with the world at a much different level than attempting to tax our industries, tax our citizens, and drive them, drive those industries, and drive those jobs to other areas that aren't going to aren't going to charge this ineffective uh, this ineffective tax on their industries. And I, I look most notably south of the 49th parallel to the U.S., but you look in China and India and other places of the world, there's there's ample opportunity for, for the industries that we operate in to operate in other jurisdictions of the world. And I, I, just, I would just I say this, Roy, uh, as well. Um, 
we should recognize the sustainability of the industries we have. I always say when you need another uh, product that Canada can produce, you should actually buy it from Canada and buy it from Saskatchewan because of the sustainable way in which it is produced and offset some of, uh, in off, oftentimes, a much uh, uh, dirtier product that is produced elsewhere in the world. This, this is what Canada has to offer, innovation and, and clean, sustainable products, and we should recognize that. We already know that... Uh this is maybe a time when foreign investment in Canada is struggling more than it has for some significant period of time, and certainly more than it should because of the lack of pipelines and other initiatives that have not been completed or even begun. Uh, so this is, do, do you not, is there anything at all in what Mr. Trudeau put forward earlier in the week that, that seems workable to you? Is there, is there anything in this plan that you would say, yeah, we could, we could work with, with that? The only thing uh, that was put forward in the conversation the other day, and I would note that we were not reached out to, uh, we had a phone call at the uh, Ministry of Environment level in the ministry five minutes after the Prime Minister took to the microphone and announced uh, what he was doing with these dollars. The only positive thing uh, that came out of that day was the federal government actually accepted our plan, our made in Saskatchewan plan of prairie resilience, because it's a plan that is based in consultation with the industries, and it's a plan that actually has uh, carbon reduction uh, uh, targets uh, built into it. They, they've chosen to go further and tax families and tax schools and tax our hockey arenas and tax our hospitals as well in this province. So our, our, uh, our challenge in the refer- our, our reference case to the Court of Appeal here in Saskatchewan is going to continue um, because all of that additional tax that they are attempting to, uh, to uh, lay on the families in our province is, uh, is unnecessary, ineffective, won't reduce emissions, um, but will reduce uh, will reduce uh, our family income. So we, we're going to continue with our our court our court case, and uh, but we were happy. I will say we were happy to see them recognize the work that we have done on our Maiden Saskatchewan plan. They've recognized that and they've adopted it as their own because it's an effective, an effective and achievable policy. So let me come back before we take a break. Let me just come back to the issue of that of the rebate. Is does that rebate? Does the rebate make any sense to you when 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 the prime minister says? that you will actually get more money back than you paid out for the increase in cost because of the carbon tax. And uh, it doesn't make any sense to me because it's $20 per ton now. Fifty Is it supposed to be $50 per ton by 2022? They haven't, they, how can they project? How, do, how, how can they predict what it's going to be even a year from now? Does that rebate plan make any sense to you premier well we actually disagree with the with the, the facts that they're putting forward uh, with respect to the rebate plan uh, you know first and foremost it's based on on canadian averages so the canadian average of a family of three or four would have one vehicle in saskatchewan the average is 1.7 vehicles per family so the 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 uh, the averages uh, that they are utilizing i uh, just simply don't hold water in saskatchewan so we actually don't accept uh, the fact that that Saskatchewan families are going to receive uh, more back than they paid. Furthermore, um, the other question we have is: is if you were to receive more uh, than you paid, who who is chipping in? And and it, it in this case, who would be chipping in the extra would be schools. Our schools, our publicly owned schools in in this province of Saskatchewan, our hospitals, our hospitals, our our hockey arenas, and we're going to face higher. Uh, rates of operation for those public services that people in in our communities in this province anyway expect uh, to be provided. So that is where the the extra dollars would come. In the case of Saskatchewan, they actually won't be there because the law 
the uh, the the, uh, the data that they're utilizing, the Canadian average data, doesn't hold water in Saskatchewan. So I go back to a couple of years ago when my predecessor, uh, Premier Wall of the day, asked uh, this question: If you're going to attempt to give all the money back, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And again, Saskatchewan asked the Prime Minister, the Minister of Environment, federally, uh, if that is your plan, what's the point of this in the first place? I remember that question being asked, and I remember very well the Prime Minister didn't have an answer. Premier, please hold on. We're going to come back with Premier Scott Moore. Premier uh, Scott Moore of Saskatchewan is with me, and we always appreciate the time, Premier. What are you hearing from from business leaders, and what are you hearing from farmers, the agricultural sector, and, and just your constituents in the province of Saskatchewan? I think first we're, we're hearing from those um, that have been involved with our Made in Saskatchewan plan that they're pleased. Uh, that the federal government has accepted uh, the plan that we put forward as it is a plan that uh, that they were well consulted on or, and are familiar with. Uh, the, the, the second uh, piece that I'm hearing and probably hearing more of, uh, to be honest, is is that this this is nothing more than a sham. It, it, people are seeing uh, right through it across the province of Saskatchewan with respect to uh, if you're taking money with one hand, giving it back with the other. Uh, you know, they reiterate uh, Brad Wall's comments. What's the point of doing that in the first place? Uh, and, and this is coming from people, farmers, business people, outdoorsmen, in, outdoors people in the province of Saskatchewan that have a great, a great desire to spend time in the environment and to continue to protect the environment, the great outdoors that we have here in Saskatchewan, and that includes our atmosphere, that includes our water, our, our, uh, our forests. And, and uh, so I, I am hearing from what I consider some of the strongest environmental proponents in the nation uh, very much that this is... Uh, just the federal government attempting to move forward with a, a flawed policy that uh, is, is essentially a, a blatant effort to try to gain votes in the next election. So what now? What happens we'll next? With, yeah, we'll continue with our uh, our reference case in the courts because uh, we don't feel this should be this should uh, we don't actually feel the federal government has the jurisdiction to do this this uh, to apply this tax to Saskatchewan people. Um, we're going to continue uh, to look at what opportunities we have as we have a couple of crown corporations that they want to apply this tax to. Here, here, here's a note of irony. Uh, Sask Power, our power corporation that is owned by the people of the province of Saskatchewan, has a, an emissions target of uh, reducing emissions by 2030 by 40%. And that's 10% in excess of the Canadian target. The federal government wants to apply the carbon tax to the power bills in the province of Saskatchewan when they are already going beyond what Canada's uh, efforts are or what Canada, Canada's targets are by a full 25%. From Instead of 30, they're going to 40, 40%. With that in mind, what, sense, what, what, what nonsensical type of policy is this? Well, that's the question. I mean, the, the rebate program is predicated on a $20 per ton of emissions number, not on the $50 per ton charge, not uh, far down the road. And how do they know? I mean, I... I this is probably a, an irrelevant, uh, maybe an irrelevant question, but uh, how do they know what's going to happen to the carbon tax, the carbon price going forward? How, do they, how can they project and predict accurately, so accurately they can tell us exactly what the rebate's going to be? It just, it just doesn't make any sense. I, lo- I just look at uh, Premier when, we had, when there were uh, liberal governments in Ontario, that of uh, Dalton McGuinty and that of Kathleen Wynne. There was $148 billion in debt. The province was $148 billion in debt when Mr. McGinty took over. It was $312 billion, the world's largest subnational debt, when uh, Premier Wynne was removed by the electorate a few weeks ago. 
And much of that had to do with their green energy plans and their, their cap-and-trade plan. And I, I know that folks are saying it's going to cost $3 billion to get out of that one. But it, it wasn't going to be – it's not – it wasn't going to be fiscally responsible. Even the Auditor General was complaining about the accounting practices. This is all – to me, it's all tied together. And, and you're seeing uh, further fallout from that flawed plan uh, that, they, that they had in Ontario in the fact that they, many of the emissions reductions actually weren't coming from Ontario but were being purchased with Ontario money uh, from, the, from the jurisdiction of California, yeah, which yeah. I think uh, speaks to the, the, uh, the, the total farce uh, that this entire uh, policy is. It would do the federal government uh, well and the prime minister well to admit they did not run on this in the last election right. if they choose to move forward with it. Let's run on it in the next election if you choose, Okay, and uh, and, see, and let the people uh, speak. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Always appreciate it. Take care, Roy. The shootings in Pittsburgh today, and CBS News has posted an update, claims police officials have confirmed the reports that um, Robert Bowers, 46 years of age, shouted, all Jews must die while firing indiscriminately in the Tree of Life synagogue, during services, he exchanged gunfire with officers while confined on the third floor of the synagogue. Reports are that eight people are dead. There's also the arrest of the pipe bomber, the alleged pipe bomber, in the United States. And the um, IRB, the uh, Immigration Refugee Board, has ordered a British Columbia refugee claimant out of Canada he was a, an ISIS sympathizer, a very active ISIS sympathizer. Tom Quiggan is a senior researcher at the Canadian Center of Intelligence and Security Studies at Carleton University. He's a court-certified expert on terrorism, been a guest on this program on a number of occasions, was with the CAF for 15 years. And uh, it's the Tom Quiggan. What's the podcast called, Tom? Put Tom on for me. Go ahead, Tom. Uh, just to let you know, Roy, I'm no longer at uh, Carleton University, just so uh, that doesn't get out there. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly been an interesting week. Uh, this recent attack on the synagogue, I mean, just today, uh, I think is yet another of series of violent incidents which have a common theme that go through them, and this is the same as, like, the pipe bomber. And what I find fascinating from an intelligence analysis point of view on the political side is that identity politics has taken control. Uh, most of these events are driven by identity politics. And even 10 years ago, an event like this would have been used by politicians and pundits and the news to say, you know, we need to work together, we need to heal divides, we need to, you know, break down the barriers. But now, as soon as something like this happens, it's identity politics. This is all the fault of Trump. This is all the fault of Hillary Clinton. This is all the fault of, you know, yeah. whoever. And even over at MSNBC, I mean, Chuck Todd made the absolute ridiculous statement that, you know, we have to look at the Russians as being behind the pipe bomber, uh, which, of course, is just an absolutely ridiculous statement. It's just seeped in identity politics. And by the way, if the Russians did that, it would be an act of war. Um, but yeah, this is this is the problem I think that's gone through our society right now. And my 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 own personal opinion is this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And we should start used to look. We should getting. We should get used to looking at these kinds of incidents. They're going to occur more often. You know, it's terrible. And what? What? If you use the identity politics, what you're doing is causing people who are already unstable to become even more unstable, and you're giving them almost license. I don't want to overdo it here, but you're all in their minds, providing them license to carry out their insane and horrific attacks. 
No, in fact, you're 100% correct, Roy. That's the problem is people like this used to exist on the fringe of society, and people kind of knew who they were, and that was a crazy guy that lived down the block, and everybody knew it. So, for instance, the, uh, the pipe bomber uh, has a history of this kind of activity going back to 2003. He threatened to bomb the Florida Light and Power uh, uh, organization because he was upset with them or whatever, and he's got like a history of doing this, but as this kind of discussion becomes more common in the media, more common in social media, more common in, you know, like bar rooms and family dining room tables, uh, this kind of person is now becoming mainstreamed. It's becoming acceptable. So not to get too political here, but uh, we just had a uh, an election in Toronto for the mayor. Okay, good stuff. John Tory goes to the Dundas Mosque, which repeatedly has said it's okay to kill the Jews, it's okay to kill, it's okay to kill gays, etc. And the imam there is from the International Union of Muslim Scholars, which is a banned terrorist group. But it's socially acceptable now to be seen to be hanging with these kind of folks. Jennifer Keysmat, who ran against them, visited the Al Huda Mosque as part of her, I guess, community outreach or whatever. But this mosque actually dresses up its children in Hamas uniforms and Hezbollah uniforms and then puts that on their Facebook page. In other words, this kind of rampant anti-Semitism and this kind of rampant identity politics is increasingly socially acceptable uh, amongst the political class. So, yeah, if it's acceptable at that, and then you can see it goes right down through society, and people who in the past probably would have shied away from speaking out or acting out on these kinds of issues are now getting the idea that what they're doing is becoming acceptable. And you see this is getting worse before it gets better. Uh, I see nothing working against this so far. Um, this, these, Maybe these two events together with the midterms coming up will sort of provide a bit of a gel and maybe encourage people to back away, but I don't think so. The pressure and the wave that is behind this kind of thing, and if we look here in our own country... Uh, we see the same sort of thing happening, that the use of identity politics is becoming increasingly common. Yeah. The language of violence is increasingly common right across the board. So, I mean, Hillary Clinton well, recently said, you know, we can't have civility yeah. until the Democrats are reelected. We just had Andrea Horace say she wants to put her foot on the neck of Doug Ford and then throw him out of office. And this kind of language, unfortunately, permeates down through the system and becomes acceptable. So the people who are in the political arena had better recognize that what they're doing is potentially exactly uh, contributing to what we're seeing. Tom, thank you so much. And what's the podcast? Uh, we, the podcast is the uh, Quiggin Report. We are basically looking mostly at issues of free speech as it relates to national security, migration, terrorism, extremism, and politics. Uh, strangely enough, we just put out a podcast a while ago called Jews are the Canary in the Coal Mine, uh, and which is ironic given the events in the synagogue today, because in any society today in the West, if you want to measure how your society is going in terms of human rights, violence, and stuff like that, Look at what's happening to the Jews, because they tend to be, along with the blacks, they tend to be at the bottom of, shall we say, the social pile. Well, the problem, Tom, and, the, and I only have a few seconds, the, uh, the numbers of attacks, racially or religiously inspired attacks, are the, the Jewish Canadians or people who are Jewish are number one, uh, most attacked most frequently. Tom, thank you so much for the time. The Quiggin Report on, uh, on, the, on the podcast, and uh, so he's no longer with uh, Carleton University. Got to check that. Uh, check that website, Tom. He's got your name there. Here we are on the cusp of this 
a global compact for safe, orderly, and regular migration, which brings with it um, all sorts of questions, uh, certainly from our listeners. Michelle Rempel joins me, the shadow minister. It's not uh, the opposition critic anymore. Shadow minister for immigration, citizenship, and refugees. Michelle, thank you very much for the time. And wh- where do we start with this discussion? Where Where do you stand? Where's the party stand? And what's the government? What's the government agreeing to? Sure. So, so first of all, um, the Conservative Party of Canada believes very firmly that Canada and only Canada has the right to make immigration policy for our country in that we are sovereign and that it is up to our government and our parliament to be making those decisions, not the United Nations. So I think that's where we start. Now, there's been a lot of conversation on social media about the Global Compact on Migration. Uh, I've known about it for a while. We've tried to get some study of this at our parliamentary committee. I haven't had a lot of luck on that. Um, But, I mean, here's my concern. First of all, uh, we're living in a situation in this country where we're we're under a prime minister that I think it would be anybody would be hard pressed to argue against this point. Our immigration system is broken. We've seen tens of thousands of people. uh, I would call it an abuse of our asylum system cross into Canada illegally uh, after having reached upstate New York and then claim asylum. Years long wait there. Uh, really no plans for, or, 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 or really no discussion at all from this government about long-term integration policy, no discussion about meeting or, or matching the needs of the Canadian economy directly towards our immigration plans or how we you know, pay for a lot of the integration costs that are now associated with people coming into the country this way. So we're, we're working within that context. So, you know, I've said this to you before, we're three years into this parliament. I frankly don't think that we can see some fix to that immigration system unless we see a change in government. And then enter this document, the Global Compact on Migration. So what does it mean? So, what does it mean to Canada specifically? What, what, do you, what do you interpret this as meaning to, to this country? Australia refuses to sign on. The United sure, States sure. Is, will not sign on. Poland will not sign on. Hungary has refused to sign on. Sure. So I, I, at this point in time, after three years of being in the role that I'm in right now, I don't have a lot of faith in the United Nations in terms of immigration policy. And I, I'm just being, I'm putting that mildly. Uh, I mean, I've talked to you how many times about how the UN failed the Yazidi people in terms of being able to resettle genocide survivors. I've, I've had, you know, very combat- combative uh, interchanges in public with the head of the United Nations Human Rights, uh, the, the, the refugee group in Canada, uh, just asking basic question about costing. And this document itself, while it's not legally binding, um, it has a lot of principles that I think Canadians haven't had fulsome discussion about in Parliament. And for that particular reason, I, I'm not inclined to support it because Justin Trudeau hasn't come out and talked about how, you know, like, there's a lot of costs associated with uh, some of the principles that are outlined in that document. And, you know, you know, it's one thing for Justin Trudeau to just sign on to a document, even if it's not legally binding. But the principles in there don't reflect the reality. I mean, you, you mentioned some pretty high numbers. At some point... We and that was written in 2000... And, and Michelle, that was written in 2007. I know. And, and the reality is, is that Canada has a very generous social program system. Uh, we have deficits that are going out of control, and I think most Canadians want to under- know that 
people that are coming to the country are doing that by playing by the rules. Yeah, but do you, do you have a, that, is it is it your sense is it your sense that this particular document that is going to be ratified by Canada, I think, in in December, uh, and 188 other countries, do you believe that it's going to have a direct and uh, perhaps almost immediate impact on on our borders and well, on on Canada? There's a reason why I bring Trudeau up first. Justin Trudeau has immediate and direct impact on our borders. Uh, this document, frankly, is, is an articulation of Justin Trudeau's policy. So even though it's not legally binding, like it, it doesn't instantly change Canadian policy, yeah. Justin Trudeau has already adopted most of it, right? And, and so to me, this is why I say we, we need a change in government, because like I mean, a conservative government would not allow what is happening at. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't, a conservative government, government, conservative government will not sign on to this. Well, again, I think that we need to have. Look, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I think that the, the, a lot of the principles in there are, are not manageable because they're not costed. There are, you know, I've been a, I have been a, a champion for human rights in terms of uh, the Yazidi genocide, and I think that. There are some elements in that in, in that document that talk about human rights and human rights protection, which are important. Right. But we can't cede Canada's sovereignty to um, uh, to, a, to an international group. And right. look, the okay, United so, will come out and they'll spin it and they'll say, "Well, this this isn't legally binding." You know, countries still have sovereignty. Yeah. But a lot of the principles that are in that document, they're they're unworkable. The way that the liberal government has been managing. Okay, our, let me ask our, you. Our let me ask you one. Let me ask you one question in the, in the time we have left. The story about the uh, caravan that is moving toward the United States from Central America, and you heard the clip from Mr. Trump. You and I'm sure you've heard Donald Trump speak about this, and it's become a hot discussion issue and an election issue in the United States. Is this a? How do you define this? Is this a precursor? Of, of what what's going to happen in the world is it is uh, takes us back to this document from the United Nations is is this just is this the way I don't know is this the way things are going to be well I mean this is my hesitancy and and why my, my inclination is to not support this agreement because the United Nations has done nothing to address some of the root causes of migration I mean the United Nations completely failed in terms of the Syrian crisis the United Nations has failed to put the onus on countries where there's extreme corruption and 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 causes of these types of migration. So, so to me, that's where the United Nations should. That's my frustration. Is the United Nations should be focusing on putting the onus on on failed nation states to be accountable for their actions and and how they're harming their people. I okay. mean, how many times do we see the United Nations put you know spend so much time talking about the state of Israel versus the Syrian crisis. It's just, that's my hesitation. Well, the there's, as, as they say, probably not functional as a group. It needs serious reform. And that's where I think a lot of countries and, you know, my party included, uh, have serious hesitations about this type of yeah, an agreement without yeah. hearing about it. And that. unfortunately, even though it's been in the, in the works for some time, most people have only just become aware of this, this migration document that is going to be assigned onto and ratified by uh, 190, 189 countries in the world. Michelle, thank you very much for the time. Yeah, and stay tuned because I've got some uh, action in Parliament coming up on this agreement. Okay, I'll talk to you about that too. The uh, shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh today, earlier today. Now we're told that uh, 
11 people are dead. And it becomes more and more difficult as we hear stories, incidents, talk about horrific moments like this. It becomes more and more difficult for people to absorb, to, uh, to, to deal with it even from a distance if you're the, uh, the news consumer. And, and you hear about these incidents. How, how do you deal with it? And who are these people? We've asked this question before. And what is it that drives them? to take the acts they take? Is it the, the warring that is going on between political parties and political entities? Dr. Frank Farley is a leading psychologist in the United States. He's at Temple University. He's a past president of the American Psychological Association. He's also Canadian. He's the People's Professor, the People's Professor's blog for Psychology Today. Frank, thank you very much for taking the time. I'm sure people uh, in, in media and elsewhere are all asking you the same questions today. Uh, who, what is it that causes, what can cause someone to commit the kind of act that this Bowers, Robert Bowers, uh, committed? What is it that drives someone to have such hatred and to commit such unspeakable, horrific acts? Well, Roy, uh, you know, I wish we had definitive answers, of course. But we're a long way from that. Uh, but, you know, the, the three major motives or categories of motives for, for such violence, let me quickly go over those. Uh, one is expression. And that's where, you know, you use violence to release feelings of frustration or anger. So I'm not certain that applies here. We don't know. The second one is manipulation, you know, where you... Use violence to control others or get something you want. So that doesn't sound too, too relevant to this one. The third category, uh, motive, is retaliation. That is violence used to retaliate against others for one thing or another. So expression, manipulation, retaliation. You know, this crime probably falls under at least one of those, if not all of them. And, um, you know, they we're putting the label hate crime on it. And uh, clearly it's, uh, it's a hateful act, and it's directed at a particular target. It's anti-Semitic. That seems pretty clear. Um, you know, uh, uh, it's so hard to figure these things out. Let me ask you, know, you this. Often people will rush to judgment and say, yeah. oh, it's mental illness. Yeah. Well, it turns out that in a lot of cases... It's not. It's not. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a sick act, obviously. But does it fall into the usual categories of mental illness? And often they don't, these crimes. But they are clearly, there's, there's a deep sickness, an extreme quality in, in the a person's emotions that drives them into this kind of thing. One of the things that worries me, Roy, is... Uh, is it even remotely connected to elections? Because in the history in America, there's some very interesting research going way back to lynchings in the Deep South, back in the early part of the, uh, the 20th century. And what the research found was that often lynchings, that is public violence, as represented in lynchings, and, and they, they were racist in nature, it peaked in uh, when close to elections and 
the underlying idea was that, you know, elections are where power can change hands. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of increases that sort of level of emotionality in the population, the level of arousal, if you will. And so they found that lynchings, racist lynchings, tended to peak in proximity to elections. And I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but because this seems to be quite anti-Semitic and targeted against Jews. Um, I just hope that it's not a, a broader, it's reflecting anything broader that might be connected to the upcoming elections here. Now, do you think, Frank, that given the fact that there, there was the pipe bomber and he was um, identified and arrested, at least an individual who's accused of being the pipe bomber has been identified and arrested. Would that give another person who's emotionally, uh, I don't use the word unstable because it's much worse than that. Would that give someone impetus to commit such a horrific act? Is there a, is there a connection between evil deeds? I, I think there could be. In a sense, it's giving license to kill mm -hmm. in, in a way. And, uh, by the way, a growing field in psychology is studying emotional contagion and violence contagion. You know, do these extreme behaviors function almost like medical contagions, you know? And, um, yes, I think that something uh, that you just described could be a prior uh, horrific attack, mm -hmm. could be... Um, to, could sort of give license. It kind of validates okay. the next person to do what you know, Frank, it's they just, want to do. It's horrific, and we're all searching for answers, and we're all hoping it will never happen again, and we all fear that it will. I thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I know your time is, is extremely busy. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Take Roy. care. Frank Farley. Statistics Canada is asking banks across the country for financial transaction data and personal information of 500,000 Canadians without their knowledge. Global News has learned. And then when I jump down a couple of lines, I find this. The personal banking and financial transactions being requested include bill payments, cash withdrawals from ATMs, credit card payments, electronic money transfers, and even account balances of Canadians across the country, half a million people. David Aiken joins us, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News. David, I don't like asking open-ended questions like, what's going on? But what's going on? <laughs> yeah, what is going on? Well, uh, here's what's going on. For the last year, for the last year, Statistics Canada has been in negotiations or discussions with our nine largest financial institutions. So that's the big banks, some big credit card companies, because it needs data. I mean, StatsCan's all about data. It needs data. Uh, about how you and I spend our money. Are, is a, I, I'm 54, I've got two kids, I'm in Ottawa. Am I buying shoes? Am I buying dairy products? StatsCan wants to know what 50-year-old guys in Ottawa are spending their money on. And normally, StatsCan would figure that out by doing surveys. It would phone me up or somehow find me and say, would you participate in a survey, please? And, and away we go. But in this day and age, you know, people are not answering phones from any pollsters, whether it's StatsCan or others. People aren't doing surveys online. And so StatsCan was having a problem saying, you know, we, we still need this data somehow. And so it figured out, listen, why don't we just go to the banks and say, um, we want every single transaction that David Aiken makes through his bank. 
And the bank has a lot of details on every transaction. It's not just the amount and when it was made and what city I was in. It was also the, the goods and service I, 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 uh, I bought, uh, etc. So basically, StatScan says, send this all in to us. What StatScan promises it will do is it will, once it has that information about David Aiken's spending, it will strip out my name. Because really all it's interested in is what 50-year-olds in the Ottawa area are spending money on. So I've got to trust StatsCan in this case that it's going to take my name out of it. Um, it's got a pretty good uh, privacy record, StatsCan, but not a perfect one. But the bottom line is, Roy, and you referred to this, whatever's going on here, David Aiken's never being asked if that's okay, and I'm certainly not giving the chance to consent or not. And you know what? This is our laws. This is one of the things that I think is most remarkable for me about this. StatsCan has some pretty broad powers to compel this information quite legally under the Statistics Act, so long as it handles the information quite correctly, for any organization in the country, banks or otherwise, that collect data, StatsCan has the legal authority to say, give us the data. Uh, we'd like to see it. And that's what's happening here. The big, this is not a done deal. This is not yet happening because our banks are a little bit concerned about this. They don't think this is necessarily a great idea from a customer service standpoint. They've been in negotiations and they have not signed off on it. And I think what you're going to see next week, now that we've broken the story, is the politicians are going to get involved. I can guarantee you that the the liberal government did not exactly know what StatScan was doing here, and they may have something to say about that once they've had a chance to review our reporting on this. Well, I'll tell you, uh, seeking personal and confidential information on half a million Canadians without their knowledge, and certainly without uh, their consent, as you pointed out, I get hung up on that. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but I, I have a real issue with this. And yeah. who, would, who at StatCan is going to see this information? Do we know? Right. Well, let me just go back on the, this number, half a million Canadians. So what StatCan is doing, remember I said it wants to know. StatCan's question here is, what are 50-year-olds in the Ottawa area spending money on? Right. And so StatCan already has quite a bit of information about me, about you, Roy, about every Canadian. We fill out the census. We've, we've participated in the surveys. The odds are real good. It already knows my name, address, SIN number. Okay? And it's got some demographic about me. So what it will now do is say to its database of millions of Canadians that it already has, we don't need the payment information of every single Canadian. All 20 million households, all 35 million of us. It just needs a sample. And that's where we get to the 500,000. Because what StatsCan will do is say to its big computer here in Ottawa, spit out a list, mm -hmm. a representative sample of all Canadians. Uh, give us that list, of, and it's going to be about 500,000 people. And then it takes that list of 500,000 Canadians with SIN numbers and everything, and it gives it to these nine largest banks and tells the banks, Anytime anybody on this list of 500,000 people spends anything anywhere, you tell us about this. And that will, they will collect that data, or the proposal is, they will collect that sort of data for a period of time, you know, a month, a couple of months. And then, in six months' time, they'll throw away that list of 500,000 and ask for another 500,000. So you can see here, Roy, over a period of a few years, we're not just talking to 500,000 Canadians, we're quite possibly talking about millions of Canadians, You're on me for again, sure. who will have their information passed back and forth without their consent 
or knowledge. From a data scientist standpoint, I, I, and I, I interviewed the data scientist in charge of this uh, at StatsCan on Friday. Is a you know really very pleasant fellow. Uh, you know he's, he's very he's been there for years and years. He's thrilled about this project. And why wouldn't he? This is getting data in real time that's absolutely straight ahead and great data. He's going to be able to produce lots of great information about how our country is, uh, you know, our economy. But I'm not so sure that the StatsCan gang is thinking about the political picture. And here's where politics and Roy, this is, I think, the interesting point. You remember that the Conservatives all but declared war on Statistics Canada when Stephen Harper was in charge. They said if the long-form census should not be compulsory, Canadians' privacy rights should trump any compulsion to fill out and give information to the government. So StatsCan said, oh, no, political control, please, over StatsCan. The Liberals, as we all know, showed up and said, oh, scientists are wonderful, researchers are wonderful, go ahead, do whatever you would like to do, we won't interfere, and this is the result. We end up with a project basically conceived by scientists um, who want information, uh, and they essentially are going to walk into the bank accounts of 5,000 Canadians or more, millions, to get this information, and I'm not so sure that the Liberals, this is what they were thinking of, go ahead, scientists, do whatever the heck you want. You know, from what I'm seeing, David, and I, I, I wonder how people are going to respond to your explanation. Maybe they're going to be more relaxed about this. But, but people were very angry. And the emails that I received, there was real real anger, not just frustration, but anger. Um, mm -hmm. And then the point was made, uh, and you made it in, your, in the article, uh, in the piece for Global News, StatsCan lost the sensitive information files for over 600 Canadians already this year. So it's 600 people, right. but so it's still, it's it's... It, it, it's troublesome. Are you comfortable with it? Are you comfortable with the stats? I sure would like to know a lot more about it. Yeah. I'd sure like to know exactly. a lot more about it. And I guess this is the thing. So you, you, you mentioned StatScans did lose data from the long form census. Now, this was the hard copies of some. Uh, in this case, you know, they were in the, the, the trunk of a car of an employee and the car got stolen. Well, fine. But what actually was more concerning about that incident and, you know, Okay, that seems to be a strange event. Well, StatsCan did not disclose that leak to the Privacy Commissioner, to our Federal Privacy Commissioner. And I think that's what's got some people a little bit concerned, is saying, if you're going to set up a system and you have a mistake, whether you're StatsCan or you're a bank or you're any big organization, you need to tell Canadians, hey, we screwed up and there's a problem here. Exactly. But they didn't at that time. It had to come out in the wash afterwards. And so in this particular case about this new project, the privacy commissioner has been told David, about it. I, David, I only StatsCan have about, has said, here's what we plan to do. I only have about 10 seconds. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on this on Global News exclusive StatsCan requesting More next banking. week, Roy. Lots at globalnews.ca. Yeah. yeah. All right. Works for me. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.